0: six of Heroes in History. Before we begin with the show, I have an off-the-cuff, just just thing I want to talk about. Um, because today's episode of Heroes in History, we, in today's episode of Heroes in History, we are going to be building our first fighter. And it's been like a solid two months since my last Episode, and you know, I get embarrassed about these things, but um, there was some just drama on my end, and uh, I don't want to necessarily go over all the details. But in, in summary, in the span of just a few weeks' time, I and my family, um, from both sides of my family, we lost some of our elders, we lost three of our elders, two of my grandparents and a granduncle, to COVID related deaths. And for part of it afterwards, um for one that was still in the process of recovering at the time, before her symptoms returned, you know, I was I was there to really try to do my best to help her um, Recover to the best of her ability, my grandma Sharon. And for a while, it seems like she was doing okay. But then issues relating to that COVID infection came back and, and she had to return it to the hospital. Unfortunately, she just did not win that fight. But In the meantime there, I was there helping her um, take care of herself and just cleaning up her trailer and um, just doing my best to help out. And so it's been very rough for my family, both sides of my family, as we work our way through picking up the pieces. And, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I'm purposely trying to just tie it back to this analogy of... Um, like being a fighter, as it were. But honestly, for all three of those relatives of mine, they all fought very, very hard in those final days. And, you know, and it's been, you know, our family, my family, both of my families have been fighting hard to pick up the pieces afterwards so it's like even though we're talking about a very nerdy topic um, you know just the idea of being a fighter and like fighting for something that you believe in or fighting against something that you know is wrong or being able to try to you know fight for your life even and such intense obstacles. Um, You know, I think... It's just... It it is just this idea. It's this metaphor that has just carried its way throughout all of history, really. I mean, you know, there's a nobility, and even if it's a... Even if it's a doomed conflict fighting for, hopefully, something that is right and just and, and having the courage to do so when it seems like there's only (laughs) when it seems like there's nothing left um and with the figure that we're talking about today i i it's really resonated with me just the idea of having this fighter who fought for something that was truly splendid, fought for something that actually was right in the face of evil of a sort. Um, I, I'm kind of rambling now, I know, but what I'm trying to say is that for what it's worth, this episode goes out to the fighters out there, the people who are, you know, in bouts of COVID and are fighting it, and for the people who are. Fighting to pick up the pieces afterwards. Um, this episode goes out to those groups. This is episode six of Hearson History. It is on Spartacus, and I, I hope I do this character justice. And I hope this little intro was worth your listen. <laughs> um, so yeah, on with the show. Hello there everyone, welcome to episode six of Heroes and History, where we bring history to your character shit! In this episode we built our first fighter, the ferocious Spartacus. It's episode six of Heroes and History. <laughs> Salvete omnes. That's Latin for, hello everybody, Punk Rock AJ here, how's everyone doing? Yeah, yeah, good, good, I'm glad to hear that you're all doing good. As for me, bene, valeo, gratias. That's Latin for, I am well, thank you. We got a fun show up ahead, but a quick news update. Yo, we got a Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram page. Um, yay? Go to facebook.com slash punkrockajpodcasts, twitter.com slash punkrockajpodcasts, and instagram.com slash podcasts. This is all in addition to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash podcasts. No word yet on a TikTok page. I'm actually still figuring out why I even made these to go with the show. It's like, I guess they'll get the news out there somehow. But um, but yes, now, on with the show. It's been too long. On with the show. In today's episode, episode 6, we are building our first fighter in D&D. And while it's not like there isn't any history behind this class, frankly, what really do you want from me? Look, it's the melee class, the class that excels in martial combat. It's one of the original four classes in the 1977 edition of D&D, those being the magic user, thief, cleric, and fighting man. Fighting man. Fighting man. Hmm. I don't know, just something so blase about that. Just, just They called it a fighting man, not like just fighters fighting man. I don't know. Hmm. Sorry. Anyways, were there any specific historical inspirations for the fighting man class? Sure! The English mercenary Sir John Hawkwood comes to mind. He was an English mercenary living between 1320 to 1394 who campaigned in medieval Italy. A bad dude. He was about as far from a chivalrous knight as you could get in this time period. Basically a mafioso who would take any job he could get to pay his soldiers. That means doing such dastardly things as attacking civilians. So, you know, a jerk. Well, he didn't necessarily leave a lot of primary sources, we know him very well by the amount of receipts he left us. Essentially, he, the jobs he took to, you know, kill people. Apparently, in many of the original D&D module adventures, they are written assuming that the PCs are taking a similar viewpoint. That you aren't heroes so much as you are schmucks, just trying to pay the bills. Maybe? Look, point being that, yes, there are inspirations behind this class. But again, what do you want from me? Do you want to play someone who swings sword good and hit things hard? Then play a fighter. But sure, maybe you're asking, Punk Rock AJ, what makes a fighter different from say, a barbarian or a cleric? Well, a number of things. As far as martial classes go, the fighter is the most customizable martial class, and maybe of all of d and They can wear any form of armor, can use any sort of weapon, and have always been able to be of any alignment. Alignment, you say? Well, alignment is how your character tends to act, whether they are good or evil, lawful or chaotic, or just plain neutral. So, historically, classes like Barbarian or Paladin may very well have been a bit more powerful than your standard fighter, but were restricted by the confines of alignment, neutral for the Barbarian or lawful good for the Paladin, for example. This feature isn't nearly as strict as it was in previous editions of D&D for the better IMA show, but in any case, fighters never had to worry about it. They also traditionally were able to acquire the most feats out of any class, among other things. The main drawback is that, usually, they have nothing in the way of magical abilities, but overall every once in a while you just need a dude who can hit things plain and simple, and that role belongs to the fighter. The historical figure I have chosen to represent this class is Spartacus, the man who led the most noted and successful slave rebellion of antiquity, and his presence still echoes across the world. And so. Our story begins. To understand the story of Spartacus, we must understand the ancient Mediterranean superpower that is Rome. Hopefully, you are all a bit familiar with who the Romans were. You know, Rome. Togas, wait, those are Greek. Sandals, kale salads with olive oil and wine, all of that stuff. Located in what is now modern day Italy. Centuries before what would become known as the Dark Ages, Middle Ages, Renaissance, and so on. And also, gladiators. Why doesn't the hero reveal himself and tell us all your real name? You do have a name. My name is Gladiator. Yes, gladiators are going to be very important to our story today, but we're getting ahead of ourselves just a bit. What I'm about to say next might be very well known to a great number of my listeners, but not to all, so bear with me. When most people think of Rome, they almost immediately think of Julius Caesar and the Roman Empire. Two things. 1. Julius Caesar was never himself an emperor. He was a very important statesman, general, and dictator who was on his way to becoming the de facto ruler of Rome, but he himself was never an official emperor. His fate is probably known to you as glorified by the words of William Shakespeare. See episode 2 of H&H. He was assassinated on the Ides of March. His death was meant to bring peace, but instead it hastened the creation of the Roman Empire an empire first ruled by his grandnephew, Caesar Augustus, the very first Roman emperor. But before it was an empire, and long before the birth of Caesar, it was a republic, ruled by many different senators, an agrarian, military-based economy. Rome was, as my uncle Lorenzo once put it, the tribe that basically conquered everyone else. They were also a slave-based economy, making slaves out of said tribes. One of those tribes was a people known as the Etruscans, an old tribe inhabiting part of the land that is now Tuscany, and a few adjacent regions. It is believed that the Romans first learned of the gladiator games through them. In any case, the important thing to understand is that despite their later infamy, the origins of the gladiatorial tradition are fairly humble. In fact, it was seen as a fringe and, even by the time, somewhat barbaric practice. While I am somewhat loath to make this comparison, I think Backyard wrestling is a mostly apt analogy. No, 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 no. Never mind that. Hmm. Ah, I know. How about Lucha Libre? (laughs) Okay, all kidding aside, I've had the wonderful opportunity to actually see Lucha Libre wrestling in Mexico, and OMG, if you ever have the chance to see that in person, you owe it to yourself to take that opportunity. Trust me, it is a delight. Just... Uh, One small bit of advice, if you're sitting in your plastic lawn chair and you manage to catch the ref out of the corner of your eye motioning for you to get the heck out of the way, you should really listen to him. Because that lawn chair you're sitting on is about to get smashed. Look, I joke, but the wrestling analogy is actually quite apt. Gladiators were athletes and entertainers. Yes, they were skilled combatants and duelists, but they lived and died by how well they could please the crowd. And yes, I am being quite literal when I say they died for the audience. But for clarity's sake, let's just get the general rules of the gladiator bouts out of the way. Though even then, the rules here often developed and changed over the centuries. First of all, there was a ref. While he probably wasn't as tough as Herb Dean or Big John McCarthy, he was still a very talented individual. He would be there to encourage fairness in the fight, however barbaric that definition may be to us now. There was no outside interference from the audience, no eye gouging, a rule which may have its origins in the even more ancient Greek wrestling tradition of Pankration. Both gladiators must use the weapons they have been given. We'll talk about this more in a little bit, but for now, understand that there were several different types of gladiator classes. Honestly, kind of like D&D. Finally, no killing unless otherwise ordered to. If the gladiator in question was defeated, his fate was left up to the crowd. If he fought bravely, the crowd would give him a thumbs down. Yes, and perhaps one of the biggest ironies of history. The thumbs down sign was originally the sign given to show that the man should live. It was the thumbs up sign that meant that he should be killed, summarily. So if you're a time traveler and you go back in time to a gladiatorial match, and you're the only guy there with a thumbs up sign and everyone starts giving you disapproving looks because all their thumbs are down, well, don't blame me for what happens next. But yes, if the crowd decided the man didn't fight bravely enough, then his opponent would slay him instantly. Once killed and brought to the Roman equivalent of the morgue, the slain man's throat was further slit to prevent rumors of a rigged match. However, matches to the death were fairly rare. As barbaric as it is to think about, gladiators were often molded from slaves and slaves were already fairly expensive. Most of the time. Gladiators even more so, though. They required enrollment in special gladiatorial schools, training, and even specialized diets, those diets being high-carb ones to help the gladiators build a thick layer of fat, which could help them survive attacks. At least that was the idea. Hmm. So wait, maybe they weren't Lucha Libre wrestlers, but rather sumo wrestlers? But besides all of these rules and other factors, gladiatorial matches were fairly free form, with no defined time limit. Just entertain the crowd! And then probably die by the time you're 30, like most did. Just an assembly line product in a very long, very violent history. Livy, one of the great Roman historians, gives us no less than a date for the first Roman gladiatorial games. The year was 264 BC, right in the middle of the first Punic War. The Punic Wars being the series of wars Rome had with the southern Mediterranean Empire of Carthage. From there, their popularity practically exploded. But it was still a long ways from being fully embraced by the whole of Rome. What exactly do I mean by that? Well, for the man that we are talking about today, Spartacus, the actual Roman Colosseum, the building we most associate with gladiators, is still about a century away. In the time of Spartacus, gladiators, despite their ability to garner both fame and fans, were seen as brutes. But still, they became popular, so much so that gladiatorial schools began popping up all around Italy, eventually to even such far-off places as Britannia, and having gladiatorial matches at the funeral of an important person became a tradition unto itself. After the aforementioned Punic Wars, Rome became the sole Mediterranean superpower, and its power only increased. As such, Rome was almost constantly at war with its other European and other adjacent rivals. And no, the Romans did not think of themselves as Europeans, but instead, Mediterraneans. And while Rome's power grew, so did their reliance on slaves. In addition to being a military agrarian-based republic, its economy was also slave-based. Around the time of our story, 70 BC, Rome had a slave population of around 1 million, and the future army of Spartacus, at its low end estimates, is... Thought to have had a strength of 60,000, equating to about 4% of the total slave population. Now, the slavery of this time does have some differences than what we as Americans think of as slavery. To begin with, it was not racialized. You could indeed have any sort of skin color, and the Romans would not care, so long as you did what you were told to do with full compliance. There were also different classes of slaves. In some cultures, you actually could make something of a decent living for yourself as a slave. For example, in Rome, there was a distinction between slaves who worked in the countryside and those who worked in the more populated cities. In the latter, slaves actually could expect to receive a fair bit of education and perform such duties as teach classes. In fact, when Spartacus began forming his army, they tended to avoid city-based slaves, as they were seen as much weaker and inappropriate for their cause. But make no mistake, this was still a brutal tradition that destroyed lives and families. Slaves were chained up, forced to work long hours, and then were locked into a pit. It was an expansive, wretched business. It should then come as no surprise that Rome had built itself a serpent's nest without even realizing it. So now we've discussed, in part, the role of the gladiatorial games and slavery within Rome. And I think this is in no small part part of the appeal of Spartacus, that he is a conflagration of both cruel and brutal traditions. He was both a slave and a gladiator. But who exactly was this man? Well, we know very little about who he was before the events of his destiny took place. And yet he is a defined historical figure. He is attested to by a few different Roman historians, and we have a scant few archaeological sources. But what we do have is fairly consistent. So much so that a few details start to come forth and a picture of the man becomes visible, however blurry it may be. Spartacus was from Thrace, a name for the ancient place that is modern-day Bulgaria, which lies east of modern-day Italy in the Balkans. It is suggested that he was from a horse-riding, warrior-based tribe and that he may have had some Thracian nobility to his name. The name Spartacus itself has a few variations and is attested to, in Thracian tradition, as the name of several Thracian kings. Thus, it is worth noting that Spartacus is most certainly the Romanized version of his name, possibly Sparadocos, meaning one who is famous for his spear. Thrace's relationship with Rome was unsteady, but they could be occasional allies. In any case, it does appear that Spartacus spent time in the Roman army. While his final rank is unknown, he did serve in the auxiliary units. The auxilia were non-citizen troops, and as a Thracian, he was probably in charge of a cavalry unit. Personally, I believe he must have had a higher rank than what is attested to in the records. As spoilers, he's actually a very shrewd and extremely competent military commander. What battles did Spartacus serve in? We're not sure, but what is important to know though is that during this time, he became very familiar with Roman battle tactics. Tactics and knowledge that would serve him well in life. After his time in the Roman army, Spartacus became a slave. The circumstances that happened in between are not clear. Spartacus may have deserted his unit to try and fight alongside his people and was captured, or he may have finished his service and was then forced into a life of banantry and was later arrested and thrown into slavery. Strangely, the sources we have on this issue, despite being vague, seem to say that Spartacus was innocent of his crimes and as a former auxiliary should not have been cast so haphazardly into slavery. Being a gladiator was not a noble job at this time, Dying as a gladiator could be honorable, but not necessarily living as one, and this crime did not suit the punishment. Regardless, the chains were strapped to his ankles. As a slave, Spartacus was taken to Capua, a beautiful city in southern Italy, famous for its roses and perfumes, to serve in a special gladiator school known as a lutes. Here, he was bought by Uncle Jonathan from the Mummy. Yeah, I mean, a, a lower noble by the name of Batiatus. Look, Jokes aside, Batiatus was a real big butthead, and his gladiatorial school was known for being especially cruel. Here, Spartacus was forced into gladiatorial training, his body becoming a little product unto itself. Well, we don't know Spartacus' record as a gladiator, we do know his class, and yes, much like LARPing, there were several different classes of gladiator, each of which contained its own unique set of armor and assortment of weapons. It's a fun topic to go over, but today, we are covering just what Spartacus was. Spartacus was a mormilo, a type of heavyweight fighter, so Spartacus being a big bubba guy confirmed. In terms of appearance, this gladiator wore a helmet stylized with a fin on his crest, as well as an arm guard, a loincloth, and several cloth wrappings around his arms and legs, with the front of his chest being bare. His weapons would have been a gladius and a heavy legionary shield. The Marmillo certainly would have made for a fearsome opponent, but uh, here's where we can actually break a few misconceptions about the games. First of all, gladiators were not thrown into the pit and forced to face several opponents at once. No, matches were only one-on-one, unless it was some sort of weird catch-all match. Depending on their class, gladiators would only be made to fight certain other classes, so gladiatorial matchups were quite strict. Spartacus would have been forced to face against, of all things, a Thraex, which means Thracian, another type of heavyweight gladiator class. And so, the immediate question is, why wasn't Spartacus an actual Thracian made a Thraeax? We're not sure. Maybe it was to prevent from stirring nationalistic tendencies within him. Also, while gladiators could earn money, they could not legally marry. So now, let's break down our Protagonist. Spartacus is around 30, a skilled swordsman and entertainer, and he is further armed with knowledge of Roman battle techniques, and he has one heck of an axe to grind. Without even knowing it, Roman crafted a perfect nightmare unto itself, but oh, uh, one one key ingredient is missing to really turn our hero into a true legend. And that, my good listener, is destiny, prophecy, a spicy meat the butter, something to truly take the mundane to the extraordinary. But what exactly could it be? um, what was that? Oh, well, that was just Mrs. Spartacus. She's a snake monster. Mm. No, she is not. She is, however, also attested to in the historical record, but barely anything beyond that is known about her. But what we do know about her is, is oh so evocative. You see, Spartacus was a man of faith. The Thracians were followers of Dionysus, the Greek god of wine and mirth, or at the very least, This god was named after the Greek god, but this may be an issue of translation. Both Greek and Roman writers were known to equate foreign gods by naming them after their own. Regardless, though, Spartacus was a follower of Dionysus, and his wife or mistress was a priestess of Dionysus. A dancer, she would get into a trance and prophecy. So it was that on one night after a grueling day of gladiatorial combat, Spartacus was resting on the dirt of the house of Bautiotus' training grounds. So it was that as he rested, a snake slithered and approached his sleeping form. A viper, one strike from its fangs, could kill a man in minutes. And yet, as Spartacus' lady watched, the snake came and coiled itself around Spartacus's head. And the Thracian woman knew at once that this was a sign, that her husband was like a serpent, coiled and ready to strike. An apocryphal story? Maybe. Good propaganda? Absolutely. And so it was that the snake had been coiled for far, far too long, and now it was time to strike. We don't know the exact date that Spartacus' slave rebellion began, but we know that it began in the kitchen, where the gladiators armed themselves with especially heavy meat cleavers. Despite being betrayed before the attack, nevertheless, the gladiators attacked and killed the guards and escaped into the countryside. As a small group of about 70, they were almost constantly on the run, but wherever they went, they freed slaves, entire households at times, men, women, children, and, possibly, free Roman citizens, who may just have been curious. And so, his army's number grew, and Spartacus was its leader. Now, it is beyond the scope of this episode to cover every battle that Spartacus and his ragtag army fought. As I have mentioned in previous episodes, A podcast is purely audio, and I sincerely believe, especially when we are dealing with ancient battles, that maps and other visual components are absolutely required. But while I cannot cover every battle in detail, I can give you the highlights. And this is actually where we can apply a bit of modern vernacular. You see, in hindsight, Spartacus' war is one of the most classic examples of an insurgency. His army was small, but fast and fierce, employing what would later become renowned as guerrilla tactics. And how did Rome act? Well, just like with other modern superpowers having to deal with these sorts of opponents, which is to say badly, very, very badly, a statement that is both fair and unfair of me to make. It's unfair to say that because Rome was, no surprise, fighting in two other wars outside of Italy and was also fighting pirates outside of their coasts and was still recovering from a civil war. And this was just a small little outbreak of people who were otherwise seen as just lowly prisoners. Also, they didn't know that this was Spartacus they were dealing with. It is fair to make, though, because there had been slave revolts in the past, recently, to where there would certainly have been a few old-timers around who could have recalled them. In fact, while it is more popularly known as the Spartacus War, the battles he partook in have become known as the Third Servile War, though I personally like the term Gladiator War. The name servile comes from the Latin word for slave, servus, which I believe is where we get the word servant from. That said, the previous two servile wars were fought on the island of Sicily, which was seen as a separate province from mainland Italy. And while they are interesting in their own right, they had been put down relatively efficiently. So while the precedent was there, between this and the other wars Rome was fighting, they just couldn't care enough about this little slave revolt. Pity. Because, again, if Rome had known that this was Spartacus they were dealing with, well, let's just say they wouldn't have been such slackers. Spartacus and his followers escaped to the slopes of Mount Vesuvius, still a sleeping volcano at the time. It was part of the rich Campania Valley, which was a popular vacation spot. There, they made camp, and still more and more runaway slaves came to them. Now, despite the mild toppings of gallantry that I have been sprinkling on top of this man, Spartacus wasn't always the hero we make him out to be. As his army grew, these runaways would pillage the countryside to support themselves. Actually, it wasn't always for support, as they were also there to steal and plunder booty, which involved terrorizing people who may have indeed been innocent, or as innocent as they could be. And yes, that included the raping of women, unfortunately. In fact, let's get this out of the way now, that it's unclear what Spartacus' true end goal may have been. We can deduce that at the start of his adventure, his mission was to escape southern Italy, get to the north, and cross the Alps to Freedom. And while slavery was not tolerated in his army, it's most likely that he did not seek to free all of Rome's slave population, which would have been one out of every three Roman citizens. Whether he was just being practical or that he just set the bar low, we'll never know. Again, they didn't seek to free city slaves. Regardless, the pillaging and growing army eventually garnered Rome's interest, and they finally decided they had had enough. So they sent a guy. Now, I could refer to him by his Roman name, but for the sake of ease and extra lulls for my listeners, we're going to call him Jobber Number One. Actually, his name was Gaius Claudius Globber, but doesn't Globber already kind of sound a bit like Jobber? Ha! <laughs> Alright. Still though, some respect to Jobber number one, he was still a prey of the militia of 3000 who sought to deal with the problem. They began a siege at the one and only road leading to Mount Vesuvius, attempting to starve out the slave army. Coward. Didn't do him any good anyways. You know Why? Because in the middle of the night, Spartacus and his men descended the mountain with ladders and ropes made from the vines they had gathered up at the volcano's peak, and in the middle of the night, slaughtered Jobber Number 1 and his army, stealing all of his valuables and supplies, which included armor and weapons. Scoreboard! Spartacus 1, Rome 0. So at this point, Rome and the senators who ruled it were all like, oh, huh, well, That's odd. That normally works. Hmm. Well, let's try it again. So then they sent another guy, Jobber number two, who then split his army under his lieutenants of Jobber number three and Jobber number four, yada yada. Spartacus kicked both of their asses. Scoreboard Spartacus four, Rome zero. Now, Rome was all like, uh, okay. Uh, you, why don't you give it a shot? Bear in mind that while this was happening, more and more slaves were flocking to Spartacus's base of operations still located at the foot of Mount Vesuvius, increasing his ranks even further. Additionally, every time Spartacus defeated an army, he and his troops scavenged the battlefield for more and more supplies, including armor and weapons. So, in true Pokémon fashion, every time Spartacus won a battle, he was getting stronger and more experienced. Then, something interesting happened. You see, the gladiator army was composed of several different ethnicities, including Thracians, Celts, Germans, and maybe even a few free Romans, for whatever reason. The Celts especially were renowned for being temperamental, and more likely to listen to one of their own over another. With the winter coming to a close, the gladiator army then split up, with a larger force moving to the north under the leadership of Spartacus, and a smaller force of around 30,000 under the leadership of the Gaul Crixus, staying in the south, to further plunder the countryside and gather more troops for the cause. However, Rome quickly managed to find jobbers number 5 and 6, who managed to defeat this offshoot of the Spartacus army and kill Crixus. So, this does count as a Roman victory, but since it wasn't under the leadership of Spartacus, I can only count it as a half point. Scoreboard now. Spartacus 4, Rome 0.5. After this, things get a bit topsy-turvy. Spartacus, in his northward march to the Gaul, managed to defeat Jobbers 5, 6, and eventually Jobber number 7. During this time, it's estimated that his army grew to a whopping 120,000. In fact, Spartacus's army was so large and successful that it appears he briefly considered marching on Rome itself. Now, while Rome wasn't quite as freaked out as they were when they were dealing with Hannibal a few centuries ago, allow me to still convey their feelings at this time. <laughs> Ahem. Oh my gosh, I'm so scared. Oh my However, as powerful as his army was, Spartacus was still ultimately a level 18 Charmeleon in comparison to the impressive level 40 Blastoise that was the walls of Rome. Which is to say, he made the wise decision of not being dumb and kept to marching to the Alps. But lest I forget. Spartacus seven Rome 0.5 Indeed, Spartacus was such a clever foe that he actually enacted a few oldest tricks in the book and got away with them. For instance, a Roman army surrounded his and in the middle of the night, he propped up corpses of enemies on stakes while his army continued to make noise and distractions. When the sun finally rose, they saw that they had been tricked as the soldiers weren't moving or making any noise and the actual main force of Spartacus had escaped before the dawn. And after the death of Crixus, Spartacus did something truly horrifying to the Romans. He took 300 of his Roman prisoners, lined them up around a bonfire, and had them fight to the death as gladiators, for the amusement of their slave crowd. The gasp! No, really, this was seen as beyond horrifying and disgusting to the Romans. It was cruel, horrible, and wretched, and it made Rome very, very mad. And, yeah, why shouldn't it have? That was basically human sacrifice. So, you know, Spartacus, not always a superhero. A hero, but not always a superhero. Finally, Spartacus reached his goal. The Alps, high and splendid. As beefy as they were, they were still the only thing left between him, his forces, and freedom. Which is why it's all the more surprising that he and his troops decided to turn back, away from the possible last chance they all had from escaping the clutches of Rome. Why did he do this? Historians can't agree. It may be that the Alps themselves were too imposing to cross over, though this isn't too likely, as Hannibal had done this beforehand as well and they knew it. Or maybe the men under his command had gotten their thirst of victory and now that thirst couldn't be slaked, and they outvoted Spartacus. This was an army of mixed tribes and ethnicities who weren't always able to get along, but were united in their hatred of Rome and wanted more opportunities to enact their revenge. Additionally, some of these men, though ethnically Celtic or German or whatever, had been born in Italy and had no love for the homeland of their fathers. And maybe Spartacus felt too much compassion for the men now under his control. In any case, the serpent moves back into the wolf's den. Spartacus moved back to the south. By this point, Rome was desperate for anyone to take on Spartacus. Now, when we talk about Rome being a military-based superpower, that's true, but it expands to ways which are sometimes hard for us to wrap our heads around in today's world, even for a nerd who studies this stuff like me. You see, Rome was highly honor-based, but not in the Eastern sense of the word, like how we might think of bushido or even the later Western code of chivalry both of which are very much about the merits of the individual. That said, at first I was worried that there wouldn't be one specific term to make things easier to explain for you, dear listener, but lo and behold, there actually is. Triumphus, or to use modern vernacular, triumph. But this term is actually very different than the modern word, and while not necessarily more or less complex than the aforementioned bushido and chivalry, I actually find triumph to be the hardest one to wrap my head around. Yes, triumph did relay merit of the individual to society, and was highly ritual-based, but the big difference is that triumph was state-sponsored. It was also, for lack of a better term, a parade, of which there are many variations. And different acts of valor to Rome would result in different triumphs, the honor of which would then be added to the individual's belt. To use an example from a future H&H build, when Julius Caesar defeated the Celtic chief Vercingetorix, He was awarded a standard triumph, which entailed him wearing a purple toga, a laurel wreath, and his face was painted red as a show to the most powerful god the Romans had, Jupiter. He then rode around the Capitoline Hill, and then the whole town had a party. And there was much rejoicing. Ah, but the catch is that only the Senate could award a general a triumph, and triumphs had very strict criteria. Now, let's talk about private armies. Today, we live in a world with private armies, and while PMZs are a new spin on the formula, they are nonetheless part of an ancient tradition. Don't worry, we aren't going to be covering the parameters of modern private armies today. Suffice to say, if you wanted to move up in the Senate of ancient Rome, you were expected to have your own private army with which to win battles to then be awarded triumphs to move up in the Senate. Eh, see how that works? Like... It's still a bit awkward comparing triumph to Bushido, they are extremely different forms of personal honor, but the overall point being is that triumph dictated much of Roman military society. This makes Rome the equivalent of of a bunch of state-sponsored mafiosos, constantly duking it out for control. The problem though is that despite having by now proven to be a capable foe, no general that was available wanted to go after Spartacus, not because they were afraid of him per se, but because they saw killing an army of slaves as beneath them. They're not even human, they're cattle. That said, this was so seen as enough of an opportunity for the villain of our story to make his entrance. Enter Marcus Licinius Crassus. And while I would like to call him a jobber, I unfortunately cannot. The wealthiest man in Rome at this time, it would be more accurate to describe him as a cross between calculating real estate agent and red school. In fact, Well, he came from a bit of familial wealth. That's actually how he had made his money. Real estate. Buying up houses that had been burnt down and then selling them back at exorbitant costs. One story goes that, for one of his properties, he raped the Vestal Virgin it belonged to and still got away with both that crime and the property on the defense that it was because of his greediness. Yes, really. Still, though, he was hungry for more honor and higher rank in the Senate, And he saw Spartacus' revolt as his big opportunity, which led to him personally financing eight legions. And to give only the tiniest smidgen of credit, he had served well in the Roman army. He was a good general. So how did he see fit to pump his army up? Well, a lot of his troops had served in the armies of the previous jobbers and had been part of their failures. Crassus saw how afraid these men were of Spartacus and decided they needed to fear him more. So he enacted an ancient and brutal form of punishment, decimation. Every group of ten men were given straws, and whoever drew the shortest straw was murdered by his peers with clubs. What a jerk. I mean, come on, his name is Crassus. As in, you know, crass? That man is crass? This is just the a summer, Did I mention how Spartacus always divvied up the spoils of his plunder amongst his troops equally, and that his army welcomed women and children, and that slavery was outlawed in his camp, and that when trading for booty he didn't accept gold and silver but iron and bronze so that he could manufacture more weapons for his troops, and that he physically forbade against the atrocities his men committed in their plundering? I mean, I'm not saying the guy was a saint, but come on, you know, just, just saying. Speaking of which, when Spartacus heard that they had hired Crassus, he began to sweat a bit. What followed over the next year might be one of the greatest games of cat and mouse the world has ever seen. Crassus had a larger army, but Spartacus's was faster. They had minor skirmishes throughout the year, with Spartacus even winning a few, leading Crassus to enact Decimation a second time, taking Spartacus's score to nine. Still, time was not on Spartacus's side. Seeing that Anus was slowly tightening around his neck, Spartacus eventually made it to the south of Italy and tried to hitch a ride with some pirates to make it across to Sicily. Sicily had been the site of the previous slave rebellions, so he could indeed set up something there. But those pirates, well, took the money and run, leaving Spartacus stranded in Italy. Bastards! Now, while it was impossible by this point for Spartacus to have really done anything against Crassus, I'm going to spoil something about the ending of the story which is that Spartacus is going to get the last laugh against Crassus. Twice. Beginning with the fact that Crassus had spent so long trying to catch up with Spartacus that Rome was able to recall some of their troops from Hispania. In particular, they were able to call Pompey the Great. Who? Well, put it this way. If Crassus is Grand Moff Tarkin, then Pompey, at least by this point, is Darth Vader and Caesar's Palpatine, but that's besides the point. Pompey was, at the time, Rome's greatest general, who had basically been a successful military commander since he was a teenager. And the point is that, while he and Crassus were still technically allies, they were also rivals. Pompey was Crassus' benchmark, and Crassus could not let him get the better of him with this rogue slave army. Oh, never mind the fact that Spartacus and his troops had done their fair share of pillaging and looting of their homeland. What matters is that I, and only I, get my stupid parade. So Crassus had to get a move on, while Pompey was still coming down from the north. Unfortunately for him, though, Spartacus was too slippery for too long, and now Pompey was at their doorstep. But that meant that Spartacus had nowhere left to run. The final battle occurred outside of Brutium, with Spartacus being forced to take on Crassus' forces, in what is now known as the Battle of the Silarius River. The forces lined up and took their positions. But just before the battle began, Spartacus is said to have taken and killed his horse, the symbol of Thracian nobility, stating that if they won the battle he would have more horses to choose from, and if they lost, he would have no need of it. I mean, killing a horse is kind of a mean thing to do, bro, but the point of the display was clear. There's no turning back at all. The battle was long and grueling, and while Crassus's forces were superior, the gladiator army was nonetheless holding their own to the best of their ability. The battle only truly turned to the Romans' favor after one last amazing display of badassery. Spartacus, who had chosen to fight amongst his troops, at one point lunged and went after Crassus, which had been the goal of this battle and the gladiator's only real chance of victory. At true level 20 fighter to the end, Spartacus is said to have slain two men before finally being hacked down. Unfortunately for him, this had the opposite effect on his troops. Seeing their valiant, skilled leader killed only caused them all to panic and order soon broke down. As the Romans finally routed the gladiator army. Now, it is said that Spartacus' body was never found, leading to the legend that he may have survived the battle. You know, the impetus for this scene. I bring a message from your master, Marcus Licinius Crassus, commander of Italy. By command of his most merciful excellency, your lives are to be spared. Slaves you were and slaves you remain, but the terrible penalty of crucifixion has been set aside on the single condition that you identify the body or the living person of the slave called Spartacus. Spartacus. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. Spartacus. I really, truly hate to be the bearer of bad news. But the reality of the situation is that the reason his body was never properly identified is because what's far more likely is that Spartacus's remains were probably so horribly mangled that they just couldn't be identified. The real Spartacus' body was likely buried in some nondescript ditch with a bunch of other corpses. Pretty sad. Final score, Spartacus 9, Rome 1.5. Spartacus won every battle but lost the one battle that mattered most, which ultimately was the true strength of Rome. With their vast resources and size, all they needed to do was win that one battle. There's additional salt to add to the wound. What forces of Spartacus's army remained were gathered up, and 6,000 of them were crucified along the Appian Way, ancient Rome's most famous road. Keep in mind, to crucify so many people was not cheap and quite expensive, with all the stuff they needed, like wood and nails. Also, there were probably a few owners who wanted their property back. Nonetheless, the message was clear. It was a warning to all those who might be inspired by the acts of Spartacus to never take arms against Rome. Against the establishment. Because Spartacus was secretly a punker the whole time! Woo! I mean, uh, yeah, don't do it. And it appears the message stuck. The Gladiator War was the third, largest, and last of the servile wars. As for our villain, Crassus, well, he would never forgive Pompey for stealing part of his glory. Nonetheless, Crassus and Pompey were able to put aside some of their issues and, along with the young up-and-comer Julius Caesar, would create the first triumvirate, leading to the eventual demise of the Roman Republic. That's a story for another day. But again it was Spartacus who got the last laugh against Crassus. First of all, because Crassus also had a horrible death, where he was betrayed in Syria, had his head cut off, and that head was filled with molten gold as a mockery to his thirst for wealth, and this is true, was then used as a prop in a play where it was carried around by a character named Agave, which means that in heaven, Spartacus always pours Agave syrup on his pancakes. But more importantly, whereas no one remembers the name of Crassus, Everyone remembers the name of Spartacus. The French philosopher and humorist Voltaire would call Spartacus's battle the only just war in history. You know, at the time, of course. And indeed, his story would become an inspiration for future slave revolts. Toussaint Louverture, the popular general of the Haitian slave revolt, would call himself the Black Spartacus. Voltaire and Louverture also both being future builds. Spartacus would also be cited by Marxists and capitalists alike. And he would become a popular figure in movies, like the 1960s Stanley Cooper classic, and also the 2010 Stars show, which I am of mixed opinion about, because it was a popular bro-hod show back when I was 20. But also, a prime example of the people who made the show were having way too much fun, and no, I don't mean that in a good way. In any case, both of them have their strengths and weaknesses in regards to the Spartacus story. Now, Once again, Voltaire argued that Spartacus' war was the only just war in history. Okay. I agree with that. Frankly, when I meet people who say they don't like history, I point them in the direction of the Spartacus story. This is literally when history reads like a fantasy, with an unlikely but ferocious and ultimately doomed hero who appears to have had a genuinely humane, compassionate, and righteous streak to him, doing his best to do what's right against an unstoppable villain. As such, Spartacus has gone down as one of the true great heroes of all of history. But, while being a Gladiator would suck in real life, they'd be pretty fun to play as in d Roll that transition! I have done this thing because it is just... Blood demands blood. We have lived and lost at the whims of our masses for too long. I would not have it so. I would not see the passing of a brother for the purpose of sport. I would not see another heart ripped from chest. Or breath forfeit for no cause. I know not all of you wish this. Yet it is done. It is done. Your lives are your own. Forge your own path. Or join with us. And together, we shall see Rome tremble! Alright, we've gone over the history. Now, what are the goals for this build? Well, we are building a human fighter, which some would argue to be the most boring, most standard type of character you can make in d 1st of all, that's absolutely wrong. That's absolutely hogwash. Any PC can be interesting, or just what is needed for the campaign at hand. Nevertheless, I want to do my best to try and break this stereotype by trying to make a character that is flashy and fun to play, as well as useful. We also want a character that is good at commanding troops. For stats, 15 in strength. You hit like a truck. 14 for dexterity. You run as fast as a Thracian horse. 13 for constitution. You can take the hits both in and out of the arena. 12 for charisma. You were an inspiring leader, but you just didn't have enough charisma to truly change the minds of your troops when you needed to most. I considered switching this with our next stat, intelligence, since since Spartacus also really botched that Charisma check with the Sicilian Pirates, but ultimately, Charisma is going to be more useful for the build, and I shouldn't neglect that fact. Next up, 10 for Intelligence. You have familiarity with Roman army tactics, and you play that to your advantage. 8 for Wisdom, which is going to be our dump stat. Ultimately, while your final battle would seal your place in Legend, turning away from the Alps was the least wise and least intelligent thing you could have done. Just ditch the other guys, let them fight Rome by themselves, go back to your homeland. Now nah, whatever. Alright, this is where we start to mix things up a bit. As I believe I talked about in the Sakagawea build, still love you girl, still love you, all of my builds will be humans, though I highly encourage you to rebuild these builds as different races at home. But anyways, Humans have two options for initial traits, the standard human package, which gives a plus one to all stats, and variant human, which only gives plus one to two stats, but then grants the human an extra bonus feat. Actually, I'll probably also use custom lineage at a certain point, but that's besides the point. Now, yes, variant human is better, but we are going to go with the standard human package. Huh? Why? Well, again, I'm only ever going to build humans, and I want to mix things up a bit. But just like how you should never dump con unless you're building a barbarian, if you're going to use the standard human package, human fighter is the way to go. As you'll soon see, fighters have the ability to get a ton of extra feats. So let's do some rounding up. Plus, Spartacus seems like one of those cats who really was good at everything to a certain degree. So our new stats are 16 in strength, 15 for dexterity, 14 for constitution, 13 for charisma, 11 for Intelligence, and 9 for Wisdom. For background, there's really only one option, Gladiator, through and through. Actually, I don't think this is exactly the best background for this build, but, well, let's check it out. Gladiator is a variant of the Entertainer background, which has the feature by popular demand. You can draw in a crowd with a rousing performance routine and become something of a local celebrity. You can acquire free lodging this way. As a gladiator, flashy combat becomes your routine and you get an unusual weapon such as a net or trident. As a Mermelo, Spartacus used neither, but other gladiator classes did, but this is still up to you and your DM. You also get proficiencies in acrobatics and performance. For your other two skills to have proficiency with, take athletics and insight. Alright, now let's go to level 1 of fighter. At this level, we get two things. A fighting style and second wind. Let's start with second wind. On a bonus action you can regain 1d10 plus your fighter level to regain HP. You can only use this ability once after a long rest. You also get a particular fighting style and oh we have some options. If we are playing to the Marmelo loadout we can actually kind of rule out a few options here. Nowhere is it mentioned that Spartacus was an archer. We can't use dueling since it requires the PC to only be using one hand and is fought with both sword and shield, and great weapon and two-weapon fighting don't really work either, at least for now. Let's go with protection. It lets you use a shield, and this option will help you protect your troops. At level two, we get action surge, which just lets us take one more additional action. We have to rest before we use it again, and at 17th level, we can use it twice before a rest, but still only once per, tor- per turn. At level two, we get action surge, which just lets us take one more additional action. We have to rest before we use it again, and at 17th level, we can use it twice before our rest, but still only once per turn. At 3rd level, we can choose a martial archetype. You know, what type of fighter we want to be. Well, Champion was considered, Battle master is the clear choice. Spartacus was trained as a gladiator, and this option will grant us more abilities to command troops. Battlemasters are cool. Very cool, in fact. They get special extra die, superiority die, to perform combat maneuvers, and other neat tricks. We get 3 maneuvers at level 3 when we choose this archetype, but then 2 more at levels 7, 10, and 15. So for here, take commander strike, distracting strike, and maneuvering attack. I won't read them all here, suffice to say that all 3 of these are great for commanding and rallying troops. Oh, and you get proficiency with a set of artisans tools. I dunno, pick one. At 4th level, we can choose a new feat. Let's backtrack just a little and take the skilled feat, because a commander like you needs to be skilled. Let's take intimidation, because you are. Intimidating, that is. Take persuasion as a way to actually talk to people and stealth, like for that time when you escaped Capua and then had to sneak down a mountain, or that other time when you propped up all those corpses and snuck around the back, distracting the Roman army that was out to get you. At fifth level, we get extra attack, simple as that. At sixth level, we get another feat. Take the inspiring leader feat as a way to inspire the troops and give them some extra temporary HP. At seventh level, we get our martial archetype feature, in this case, more combat maneuvers. Take rally, and with that, we've taken all the combat maneuvers that help us command our troops, and you can begin pretty much taking whatever combat maneuvers you see fit to. Therefore, I'm not going to go much more beyond in describing this feature, other than letting you know when to take them. You also get the feature know your, know your Enemy. You can spend a minute observing an enemy, and then the DM can tell you something about the enemy, such as its strength score or something similar. At 8th level, we can choose another feat. Take the athlete feat which lets us boost our strength score to 17 and we get a few general things to help us with movement, including having climbing not cost us any extra movement. Ha! At ninth level, we get one use of Indomitable. What is Indomitable? Well, it lets us reroll a save throw that we fail. We can use it twice at level 13 and three times at level 17, all between long rests. At 10th level, we get two more battle maneuvers. Our superiority die, which were once D8s are now D10s and they become D12s at level 18. At 11th level we get extra attack again. At level 12, we can take another feat. Take the tough feat or as I'm beginning to call it, old faithful. Our current hit points are increased by twice our current level and we get plus 2 HP every time we level up. Again, Spartacus was a confirmed big bubba bug guy. At level 13 we can use indomitable twice. At level 14, we get another feat. Take the Crusher feat, which comes from Tasha's. This lets us increase our strength score by 18 and gives us a few nifty extra benefits when we attack with bludgeoning damage. You know, expanding our skill set with weapons of all types. At level 15, you get two more combat maneuvers, along with Relentless, which allows us to regain a superiority die and a pickle. Level 16, take the Piercer feat. To give us some extra panache when we attack with piercing weapons. Oh, and we can increase our strength score to 19. Level 17, we can use Action Surge twice and can use Indomitable three times. Level 18, you can pick up your last two combat maneuvers. Level 19, lol, we'll take Tavern Brawler, mostly because it increases our strength score to 20, but we can also now use improvised weapons, you know, like the meat cleavers in the kitchen. Our unarmed strikes now use D4s. BIG, MEATY, PAWS! Level 20, we now get 3 extra attacks, so we can now attack 4 times per turn. Alright, let's take a look at Old Sparty. Well, for pluses, we hit like a whirlwind, with 4 extra attacks per turn. We're also very good at directing troops and leading them, not just out of, but in battle as well, with our selection of feats and maneuvers. For minuses, well, I hate to say it, but we're a bit lean. Our only capped stat is Strength, which is good, but leaving us a bit empty-handed when it comes to our other stats. For example, our health, while very good and sitting around the 200 range, could still be a bit higher. For example, if we hadn't taken the Inspiring Leader feat, we could have put another point into Constitution. Then, of course, there's the usual stuff that comes along with becoming a level 20 fighter, in that we don't have any magical equipment, no magical attacks. Much like the real Spartacus, we've sacrificed some of the things that personally make us strong so that we can better command our troops. But, ah, when it comes to leading our troops, boy oh boy, we are good at it. Play this character when you want to play Spartacus, who does not suck. Do I need to say anything else about that? I mean, seriously, play Spartacus if you want to play somebody who doesn't suck at anything. (laughs) Alright, real playing scenarios. So whether you choose to play as a character commanding lots of troops is up to you and your DM. I've never played a war game before, but I know there are rules for that sort of game in 5e somewhere. That said, I do like the idea of playing a group of rebels trying to get away from a larger army. That sort of never-ending escape sounds like an extremely tense and fun scenario, where you and the other PCs need to be on your toes and making sure you are one step ahead of that larger force. Additionally, Colosseums are actually pretty standard in not just d but many fantasy games and settings. Tales of Symphonia, Monster Rancher, and the actually appropriate for once Kingdom Hearts comes to mind. Because otherwise, Kingdom Hearts is never appropriate in polite company. Colosseums and gladiatorial battles make for a fun interlude from the normal campaign and give your PCs just a bunch of fights to just throw themselves at. What I think might be more interesting is actually building the historically accurate gladiator classes in d and and forcing your players to adhere, or mostly adhere to, those rules as they duke it out. That sounds like so much fun, I just might try it someday. Hmm, more inspirations? For a movie, everyone, if you haven't seen the 2000 Russell Crowe film Gladiator, go check it out. It's a classic. For video games, everyone, go get the old LucasArts game, Gladius, from the GameCube, Xbox, and PS2 era. I understand Capcom's Shadow of Rome is also very good, but it was only a PS2 release, so it's much more limited in terms of availability. Also, hey, there's a new anime that came out. It's called Cestus, the Roman Fighter, and lo and behold, it's also a long, grinding manga series. But the show is out there to watch, and uh, yeah, it's a boxing series about a young gladiator who's friends with the young Emperor Nero. That jerk. I've only seen the first episode, but I plan on watching the rest. As for music, well, there's going to be a spin on the formula. Rather than just one song, I'm going to recommend an entire album. Spartacus! by the Italian ancient Roman death metal band Ade, 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 Ade? Adele, it's spelled A-D-E. Anyways, the album is exactly what you want, a badass album that covers the life and legend of Spartacus. Guys, it's so good. Even in this day and age, the anti-slavery message of Spartacus rings true. As such, I have personally made a contribution to an anti-human trafficking group, and I encourage everyone, if you have the extra amount of money or ability to do so, go ahead and do what you do. I, I don't want to put myself mentally in that position, but... You know... I mean, if I was a person who had been trafficked as a human being, um, you know, I I would think the story of Spartacus would especially ring true to me, too. I think that's a very poignant story to my circumstance. And and I don't want to say, like, this little episode was that worthy or anything but like that. But for any of these groups that are anti-human trafficking, just... You know, choose one if you can and do what you can to support them because their causes, I think, also very righteous and very noble. So in respect to those who are suffering under slavery and don't have the ability to raise an army to fight back against them, they are also fighters too. Next episode is going to be our first monk build, and here is... The run. Here is the poem, the clue, as it was to the next person we are going to be looking at. Are you ready? Ahem. So, I know, of course, everyone already knows who it's going to be. Send questions and comments to punkarchajpodcasts at gmail.com. Special thanks to BT Newberg and Rachel Westoff for the awesome logo art. Please consider checking out new burst podcasts, deadideas.net, historyofsexpod.com. If you would like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash punkrockhapodcasts. There's some fun stuff there. And remember, the die is mightier than the sword.